Father in heaven, this morning as we open our Bibles, we're doing so with great expectation. My expectation is that you're going to teach us. So Lord, I have to ask that you get me out of the way for that to happen. There'll be a lot of words that are shared. I pray that they're your words. Father, allow us to see truth in such a way that it'll be easy to apply and easy to live. Some of it I know will be convicting. Lord, convict us. We're open to that. Some of it will be encouraging. Lord, encourage us. We're always open to that. And some of it, Lord, will just be educational. Teach us. And let us hold on to what we learn. Father, I look forward to seeing what happens when this message is over. In Jesus' name, amen. My grandfather farmed for a number of years in the Flint Hills of Kansas. Diamond Springs, Kansas is where it's at. I've told you a lot about that farm. I didn't grow up there, though I spent a lot of my weekends at that place. I loved it. It is, in fact, my favorite place in all of the world. I love that farm in Diamond Springs, Kansas. My grandfather was a sharecropper when he took it over, got it from his father-in-law who had homesteaded that place. I loved to listen to him tell the stories. He and my dad and uncle would get going at different times and just share what it was like on the farm. One of my favorite stories, though I don't think he ever intended it to be that way, was when my grandpa would talk about having to go to Harrington, Kansas to talk to old Abel Bruner, the banker there. He had to go every spring, borrow money to plant his crops. Now, he longed for the day that he'd be able to farm on his own nickel, but that wouldn't come until after he had left the farm, which he was able to hold on to. During the years that he lived there, he had to go every spring and talk to Abel, uh, get enough money to buy seed and plant the crops with this promise. He would come back in the fall after the harvest, and he would pay off his loan. Every year, it happened the same way. He'd go talk to Abel. Abel would give him the money he needed. They would shake hands at the end of their business deal. My grandfather would leave with the money he needed. He'd come back in the fall, and he'd pay it off, and they'd shake hands once again. Never once did he ever sign a piece of paper when he borrowed money from Abel Bruner. Not one time. My father would actually say that as he got older, in the times where he needed money, maybe to purchase a car or go figure a gun, he would call Abel Bruner as well in Harrington, Kansas, and tell him that he needed some money, and Abel would ask him how much he needed, and he'd say, well, we got that covered, however much dad needed. Abel just took care of it. He never once signed a piece of paper. Things have changed a lot. Probably in the 1970s, that opportunity just faded away. Nobody would be able to borrow money from a bank on a handshake. The 70s and the economics of those days brought that about. I was curious this past week how many signatures are required in today's world to borrow money. So I called Matt Skranick at Libby Auto, and I said, Matt, If I was sitting in your office and I wanted to buy a car and I had to finance it, how many times am I going to have to sign before you hand me the keys? He went through it while we were on the phone. Well, you're going to have to sign this and this and this and this and this. Fifteen signatures to buy a car. Matt used to be in the, the banking world, so I said, Matt, if I wanted to buy a house, can you just tell me off the top of your head, how many times am I going to have to sign a new mortgage application? He said, well, Phil, it's been a while since I've done that. Let me think. And he ran through the numbers again. And he said, I I would guess it'd be upward to 25 or 30 times. But he couldn't give me the exact number again because it'd been a while since he'd done it. So I thought, I I want the exact number. I want to know exactly how many times you have to sign a piece of paper in order to buy a new house. So I called my friend George Mercer at Glacier Bank. 
I was on my way to Missoula on Friday, had a little time, called George. George and I talked for a, a good amount of time, and then I threw my question out to him. I said, George, if I was to sit in your office and want to buy a new house and I needed to borrow the money from you, how many times would I have to sign in order for that to happen? George said, oh, my heavens, I have no idea. He said, let me find out. I'll count it up and get back to you. He called me back Friday afternoon with the actual number. Anybody want to venture a guess how many times you have to sign new mortgage papers in the year 2015? 14? 36? 52? 25? 40? Somebody said 65? Here, 65 plus initials. <laughs> Here's the actual number. Are you ready for this? 67 times. If you want to buy a new house, you want a new mortgage, 67 times you will sign your name. That's amazing to me. As George and I were talking, he said, now the interesting thing is since 2008, the bulk of those signatures are to protect the lending institution. Prior to 2008, the bulk of the 25 or 30 signatures that Matt was talking about were to protect the borrower. Today, after the real estate bubble burst, it's to protect the institution. 67 times. Then George decided to take it a little deeper and and baffle me even more. He said, if you come sit in my office, Phil, and you ask me about borrowing money, and you tell me that you're going to go out and look for a house, and you may come back and ask me for a loan, you're going to sign three times before you leave my office just from that conversation, that you intend to borrow money. Three signatures to say that you intend to borrow money. Boy, doesn't that just tell you there's not much trust in this world? There really isn't. It's evident not only in the banking institutions, and there's good reasons for it. When, when my grandfather borrowed money, he saw it as an obligation. He was going to pay it back no matter what it took. Even if he had to sell the mule, he was paying back his loan. Today, people borrow money oftentimes with no intentions of paying it back. It doesn't even cross their minds. They're just going to get their hands on the money. So there's good reason that trust has disintegrated the way it has. But it's not just in that realm that we see those types of things come into play. Even in the relational realm, we see horrible trust problems because a husband has bank accounts that his wife knows nothing about and he has them passworded so that she can't learn anything. Wives have accounts that their husbands know nothing about and there are passwords on those accounts that her husband could never get through even if he wanted to. Social media accounts that are passworded so that spouses have no idea what their husband or wife is doing online, who they're talking to, what they're talking about and there can be a whole lot of inappropriateness all hidden behind passwords laptops and tablets that are coded so that even the people that are closest to us can't get into them. There's no trust in the world that we have today for good reason. It bleeds over even out of the relational realm with people that we surround ourselves with into our relationship with God. There can be massive trust problems that people, even Christians, have with the Lord. They hear things that God has to say, but then they could audibly reply, I hear it, but I don't necessarily trust it. They might even go so far as to say things like this, I believe in God, but I don't trust him. I know that he said all kinds of different things, but that's not for me. That doesn't apply to me. It applies to other people. Even when they read passages like this in John chapter 10, stay in Deuteronomy chapter 1. You don't have to go with me to this. Just listen to what Jesus says. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, those are Jesus' words about the devil. People don't wrestle to understand or accept that at all. The devil has come to steal and kill and destroy. But then Jesus goes on, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Some translations of the Bible say, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So people hear about this abundant life that is possible, probable, that's guaranteed in Christ, yet they cannot trust it. They can't accept that those words came from Jesus' mouth directly to them. Oh, they believe in God. They just don't trust him. There are a couple of things that come into play in our lives that attack our trust for the Lord like nothing else. They're very powerful. The first one is giants, and the second one is apathy. Giants and apathy. And the Bible proves it to us from beginning to end. Let me show you both of those. You're in Deuteronomy chapter 1 now. Hopefully you are. If you're not, open your Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 1. When we start out in this book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, then Deuteronomy, when we start out in this book, Moses and all of the Hebrew people are standing on the edge of the promised land for the first time. Now, they would stand there again because of their disobedience, their lack of trust. And it would be separated, the first from the second, by 40 years. Now, Moses had delivered the children of Israel out of bondage, out of captivity in the country of Egypt under Pharaoh's rule by God's ordination and by his power. They had traveled from Egypt across the desert to the edge of the promised land. Ultimately, didn't take that long. Now, that was a lot of people moving, but still they got there in a relative short amount of time. And now they are spread out on the border, ready to move in and take the promised land. And Moses is talking to him. I want you to hear what's said. This is Deuteronomy chapter 1. The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, which is the mountain of God, when they had come out of captivity, they went to the mountain of God where they stood in the presence of the Lord for quite some time. You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Now, hopefully you are listening to that, and you hear that they're spread out for a great distance. Reason? There's a million of them a little over a million of them. So when they were standing on the edge of the promised land, it wasn't in a single file line going back behind them. God wanted it to be an imposing force before they crossed the river and went into the land that he had promised them. So they were spread out along the border, over a million of them. They looked like the very presence of the Lord coming after the enemies of God. There was a purpose for that. God had said, you've stayed here with me long enough. Now it's time to move into your promise. Now listen to what happens, verse 9. At that time, I said to you, you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as many as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. You answered me, what you propose to do is good. 
So I took the leading men in your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and of tribal officials. So Moses, up to that point, was trying to take care of everybody's disputes, all of their problems, all of their baggage, all of their junk. He was trying to take care of it by himself. And they were still multiplying. So a million plus people still multiplying. Finally, Moses said, I I can't do this by myself. All of their trust up to that point had been in Moses, but they trusted him so much that when Moses said, I got to bring some other people alongside me to help out, the Hebrew people had no problem with it. That's great. You choose those people and put them in charge of us. We got no problem with it. As they stood on the border, ready to go into the promised land, they actually came to Moses. They came to Moses and they said, maybe we ought to send a few men in to take a look at at what we're about to face. Let's send some spies in. A lot of times, those of us familiar with the story of the 12 spies that went into Canaan think that that happened right before they went in for the final time, the second time. It didn't. It happened before they were supposed to go in the first time. Now listen to what happens. This is picking up in verse 23. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eskel and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Now God had told them that the land was flowing with milk and honey, that there would be enough there to take care of all of their needs. The land was fertile. They'd be able to plant their crops, harvest their crops. Everything would be wonderful. This was a good place. It was a place of promise. The spies came back and reported that. They even carried with them bundles of fruit so that they could see it. This is what we're going to. The children of Israel were excited about that. But now listen, verse 26. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even see the Anakites there. The Anakites were a race of giants. We even saw the giants there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the desert. Then you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. Now, verse 32, listen closely. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God. God had fought all their battles. They won every one of them. He had provided for them every step of the way. Everything they needed had been taken care of by God. All of his promises, all of his words had been fulfilled in right in front of their very eyes. And now here they stood on the edge of the promised land. They knew that it was all that God had told them it would be. But the problem was there were giants there. And they said, we can't go. We can't do this. We'd rather go back to Egypt to a place of bondage and captivity, to a place of slavery, than to have to face those giants. They are too big. We can't pull this off. So for 40 years... They wandered in the desert. God said, turn it around and get out of here. He went so far as to say, not one of you will enter the promised land. In fact, the Lord would tell them that their children who had not been spoiled by their distrust would be the ones to receive the promise. Interesting teaching. Because you don't believe that I can take care of the giants, you're not going to see the land. 
you're not going to see the promise. It still happens the same way today. We can see the hand of the Lord in all the things that he has done for us. And then we face a giant, and the giant overwhelms us, and the giant destroys our faith. The giant erodes all of the trust that we have built for God because the giant seems too big. You might say, and this, this would be fair, Phil, I, I've never faced a giant. But in fairness, I would have to say back to you, oh, yes, you have. You faced a lot of giants. Let's name some of them. For some of you, marriage was a giant, and you weren't sure that you were going to be able to face it. For some of you, parenting was a giant. For some of you, your finances, your checkbook is a giant. For some, forgiveness is a giant. Somebody's done something to you, the Lord has told you that you're to forgive them, and you've said, that giant is way too big, I can't do it. So you've turned and gone the other way. For some people, jobs are the giants that they face, or the people that they work with are the giants that they face. Other people have illnesses that they have to deal with. Those become giants in and of themselves. For others, traumatic experiences that come on the scene are their own giants. For some people, are you ready for this? Retirement is a giant. They don't know what they're going to do to fill their days, to fill their hours, and that giant is overwhelming, so they run from it. They say, the Lord can do nothing here. I have no hope. And trust just begins to disintegrate. Before long, they forget about all that God has done. They forget about all the ways that he has sustained them. They forget about all the ways he's provided for them. They forget about everything that has made God who he was in their life because they're facing a giant. Giants destroy faith. Giants destroy trust. It doesn't have to be that way. Then there's this second enemy that is just as powerful. I would call it apathy. Go with me to the book of 1 Samuel. Turn over there. 1 Samuel chapter 7. While you're on your way, let me give you a little bit of background. The Ark of the Covenant was an extremely powerful and interesting box. That's really what it was. It was a box. The Lord had told the Hebrew people while they were wandering in the desert that they were to build this box. Three feet, nine inches long, two feet, three inches wide. They were to cover it with gold, and they were to use it to carry three specific things. A golden jar full of manna, symbolizing God's provision for them while they were in the desert. They were to carry Aaron's walking staff in it. That staff had budded long after it died. The staff was to be placed in the ark as a symbol of God's power. And then they were to carry the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets that had been carved with the finger of God himself inside this box, the Ark of the Covenant. The commandments were supposed to be in there representing God's precepts and God's presence. Then the box was to be sealed with a special lid. God gave them the, the actual dimensions and directions for building that lid, and then he gave it a special name. It was the mercy seat. During the days of the tabernacle and temple worship, the blood of the sacrifices of the animals would be poured over the mercy seat. It was this beautiful symbol of what was to come. We are saved by blood. Today we're saved by the blood of Jesus. Then they were saved by the blood of bulls and goats and dove and so on. And that blood would be poured over it. There's an interesting legend that says that the Ark of the Covenant was actually underneath the hole that the cross of Jesus was placed in. And when he was crucified, his blood would flow down that cross and drip across the mercy seat of the ark. Now, that's only legend. The Bible doesn't teach it, but it's kind of intriguing, isn't it? 
Maybe that's where it was. Indiana Jones couldn't find it. Maybe that's where it was. On top of the ark, looking down at the mercy seat, there were two gold cherubim, angels, that God told them to build. And they were to place them so that they were looking at the mercy seat and they were watching over the law and the presence of God. Then he told them how to carry it. They were to put it on rods, carry it on the shoulders of the Levitical priest. That's how they were supposed to handle the ark. Every place the ark went with them, they were victorious. When the ark was out in front of them, their enemies were defeated every time. Can you imagine how desperately the enemies of God wanted to have the ark in their possession? If they were granted guaranteed victory because they had the ark, don't you think they'd have fought like mad to get possession of the ark? They did. The Philistines actually got it at one point because of the disobedience of the the children of Israel. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. From the moment they got it, they could think of nothing but how to get rid of it because God is not a genie to be used at everyone's whims. So when they got a hold of the Ark of the Covenant, all they had to do was place it in their temples. It's a great story in in 1 Samuel chapter 6. God was, I, I don't know how else to say this, Jesse, you're an elder, so hopefully you can protect me from this. God was kicking the rear ends of their gods. I have no other way to say that. He was destroying their idols. All they had to do was place the Ark of the Covenant in their presence, and idols, statues were falling and breaking and heads coming off of them. So the Philistines said, we got to get rid of this thing. They built a cart, placed the Ark on the cart, hooked it up to some horses, and they drug it to the Holy Land, to the Promised Land. As soon as they got it across the border, they turned around and ran the other way. They wanted away from that thing as fast as they could get away. So they just got it into the Holy Land and said, there you go, we're out of here. I want you to see what happens. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Come down and take it up to your place. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. When the Philistines had captured the ark, it had been in a town called Shiloh. Tabernacle had been set up there and the ark of the covenant was placed inside that tabernacle. The Jews would come there to worship. The Philistines captured it out of there. They took it back to their land. When they brought it back, just a few short months later, No tabernacle was set up for it. No tent of meeting was set up for it. The tabernacle was a temporary home for God, but it was still God's home. They didn't put it back in the tabernacle. They took it to Abinadab's house. They said, hey, could you watch this for us? They consecrated his son to take care of it. It was the holiest thing they had, carrying the holiest artifacts they could imagine. And they just said to Abinadab, hey, could you take care of this? for us. Just watch over it. Now, I don't know how you picture that in your mind, but in my mind, this is what I have envisioned. Abinadab said, you bet. Eliezer, you take that on. I'm busy. I'm farming. I'm taking care of other stuff. You take that on, Eliezer. They consecrated him for it. And so Eliezer and Abinadab, father and son, took it and put it in a shed in the backyard. Threw a tarp over it to keep the dust off of it and didn't give it a second thought. It would be 30 years before the Jews would think about it again. 30 years before they would give it a second thought. It was stuck in the shed in Abinadab's backyard for 30 years. Then David said, let's bring it into the city of David. Let's bring it to Jerusalem. 
Fast forward with me now 30 years to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Macon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, does that make you wonder? It does me. They were bringing it into Jerusalem. All Uzzah did was stick a hand out to steady the ark so that it wouldn't fall on the ground, much the same way we would treat a flag. Flag's not supposed to touch the ground. Let's make sure it doesn't. We'll do whatever it takes to keep the flag off the ground. Ark of the Covenant should not hit the ground. So Uzzah reached out to steady it, and he died. Why? Simple answer. Because he'd become apathetic to the things of God. God told the Hebrew people how to move the ark. It was never on a cart. He never said, build a cart or buy a cart. New, used, doesn't matter. God never said, put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. All the time that they had carried it in the desert, they had handled it the way they were supposed to, which was on poles on the shoulders of the Levitical priest. That's how they were to carry it. And now, all of a sudden, Uzzah sticks out a hand. He wasn't a priest He sticks out a hand to steady it. Nobody was to touch the ark, but the priest sticks out his hand to touch it, and God strikes him dead. Where in the world was his father? That's my question. Abinadab had been entrusted with the care of the ark. His son, Eliezer, had been consecrated to take care of it. Where was Eliezer? Why wasn't he there? Maybe he was dead. Maybe Abinadab was dead. I don't know. They weren't there. So Uzzah reaches out to touch it. What in the world had Uzzah been taught growing up about the Ark of the Covenant? Was it nothing more than something that was out in the back shed and they took a few visitors to see it when they came over for dinner? What had Abinadab sat down with his sons and taught them about this? Apparently not what God wanted them to. And Uzzah died. He died because he had become apathetic to the things of God. Apathy does that to us. When apathy kicks in, it will quickly atrophy our spiritual muscles. When we are not staying as finely tuned as we should to the things of God, it has ramifications. Atrophy takes over, and we begin to lose the strength and the power that we should have. Listen to what happens in this story, picking up in verse 8. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, it had just come from Abinadab's house. And now, all of a sudden, David says, Let's take it over to Obed-Edom and let him take care of it. I'm not even going to bring it on in. I'm so angry with God. Put it in somebody else's shed. Let's leave it there for a while. 
for several months, David was angry with God. And the Bible would tell us that he decided to bring it in the right way. And he danced before the Ark of the Covenant as it came into Jerusalem, into the city of David. He finally remembered what he was supposed to do. His spiritual muscles got strong again and he overcame the apathy. You see, apathy can destroy our walk with God and our trust for God in some pretty powerful ways. It really can. Now, you might say that's an Old Testament type of teaching, and and we want to see what the New Testament has to say about this kind of stuff. Well, I'm glad you bring that up. I really am. Because I think we need to get into the New Testament and look at how these things affect us. So I want to look at giants from the New Testament. I want to look at apathy from the New Testament and see if we can't find a way through them so that we don't struggle the same way they struggled. Let's continue on with this idea of apathy. You may not realize that it is still very real in the church today. Spiritual apathy is. Not just within the church. It is real throughout all of society, throughout all of culture. There is a a popular belief called relativism, sometimes called moral relativism, that has permeated a lot of people's thinking. It's defined this way. It's the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, and historical context, but are not absolute. Relativism teaches that there is no absolute right or wrong. Relativism teaches that your truth can be different than my truth. How you see certain things may be different than the way that I see them, and therefore we're both okay. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's a problem. So let me show you how relativism has made its way into New Testament Christianity. We're just going to look at it in the Bible. Go with me to the book of Romans. Terry's going to leave that definition up on the screen for us. There's an interesting pattern that takes place here. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, here's where spiritual atrophy begins. It begins in apathy. These people knew who God was. They revered him. They accepted his truth. But they exchanged it, the Bible says, for idol worship for other moral ways of seeing things, a new lens by which to measure everything that was in front of them. They grabbed hold of the idea of relativism and they started to pepper it with another idea called universalism, which teaches that my God and your God and whoever is God are all the same. They just have different names. We're all calling on the same God just by different names. Folks, that is a humongous deception and don't you ever buy into that. Jehovah God and Allah are not the same gods. Jehovah God and Buddha are not the same gods. And you want to know the big difference? Jehovah God is spelled with a capital G and every other God is spelled with a little g because they're nothing but claimers and wannabes. That's it. Our God is the real God. 
So now, all of a sudden, we have people that are exchanging the real God for false gods. And it starts this whole process of atrophy within the church. Listen to what happens, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. I want you to know this about free will. We've talked a lot about this this spring. There are two sides to it. There's our free will to choose to worship God and there's our free will that he allows us to have to ignore him and to worship other gods and to follow other gods. It is a double-edged sword and I want you to know that if you choose the wrong side, God will give you over to it. That's exactly what the Bible says. God gave them over. Can you imagine that? God giving you over to your desires that are contrary to what he has taught. When that happens, the atrophy moves out of the spiritual realm into the practical and the cultural. Listen to this. Picking up in verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. There's the cultural side of it. And the practical side, God gave them over so that they could chase all their own lust, no matter how abominable those were to God. Does that sound like anything you've read in the newspapers lately? Do you know the Supreme Court is ruling on the very things that the Bible just talked about in the coming weeks? The state of Alabama two weeks ago had the rule of the people overturned by one judge, which let me just climb up on a soapbox here for a second. The very thought that a judge can overturn, one judge can overturn the will of the people is not constitutional, not at all. And one judge overturned the will of people in the state of Alabama pending the Supreme Court's ruling on marriage. Why in the world is the Supreme Court even having to rule on marriage? The Bible tells us exactly what it's supposed to be. So why does that have to happen? Because Christians have gone silent. Because the church has gone silent. And we allowed spiritual apathy to atrophy the muscles of the church so much so that it has atrophied society. That's what happens culturally and practically. But then there's another step, picking up in verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So we start in the spiritual, we move into the cultural and the practical, and then it touches the intellectual. Did you catch that list? All of these other things that get thrown into the exact same category as the middle part of it, the cultural part of it. It's easy for us as Christians to grab hold of the middle part, the cultural part, and point fingers and say, oh, look at how they have atrophied. Look at how they have become apathetic. When the Bible would say, hold it, before you do that, you've got to look all the way around and ask yourself how you're doing with this. That's the way it works. That requires from us another step called doctrinal honesty. 
Now, doctrinal honesty teaches that when we come across something in the Bible, we don't just skip right over it. Instead, we stop and look at it, and we ask ourselves what I'm supposed to do with that passage. And that helps us combat spiritual apathy. One of the things that we're going to discover are passages like this in Hebrews chapter 13. Turn over there with me. I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, up against the idea of moral relativism, we have this wonderful idea of doctrinal honesty that helps us understand that. God has never moved. God has never changed. All of the things that he teaches in the Bible, we're still supposed to be grabbing a hold of and applying to our lives. That's God's intention. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we need to make sure that we never move past that. But then there are some difficult challenges within Scripture that cause us to say, now what am I supposed to do with that in today's world? Let me show you a couple of them. We're going to go first to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 8. 1 Corinthians, chapter 8. The title in my Bible over this chapter is Food Sacrifice to Idols. The big battle was pretty simple. There was meat that was sacrificed, not sacrificed, it was butchered for the sole purpose of selling it in the meat market. Then on the other side of the street, there was meat that was being sold that had been sacrificed in temples to false gods. It was sold cheaper than the meat on the other side. So people were wondering, can we eat this meat over here that's cheaper or do we have to buy the expensive meat? So Paul settles all of that by saying, you know what, eat whatever meat you want. It's a matter of conscience for you. If you're not eating it because it was sacrificed to an idol and that has nothing to do with what you're you're buying it for, then eat the meat. It's cheaper. Save some money. But then he goes on to say that if you are with somebody else that is struggling with that meat being sacrificed to an idol, don't eat the meat. You stay away from it so that you don't cause them to stumble. Now, in today's world, we don't wrestle with meat that is purchased on one side of the street or meat purchased on the other side. We shoot our own. That's the way it works. (laughs) But for them, it was this massive struggle that they had to try to overcome. The struggle is still applicable to us. We can look at any number of things in society, particularly within the church, and ask ourselves, If I'm doing this and it's causing somebody else to stumble, should I stop doing it? Even though I'm free in Christ, should I stop doing it? The cultural application still has practical application today. Doctrinal honesty forces us to face that. So if we'll really get honest with different passages like this, we'll find God's teaching that is applied to our lives. And we have to do that. Or we will become apathetic to the teaching of the Bible, and we will atrophy. Now, there are some other passages that are a little more difficult to deal with than that one, like this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, turn over there with me. 1 Thessalonians. If you're having a hard time finding that, it's right before 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is one of the verses of Scripture that I can honestly tell you I wish could be removed. I really do. I'd like to have it taken out of the Bible. If I had the opportunity to sit with God and say, God, there's just this one verse that I wish you would take away. This is it. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 26. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Four different times in the New Testament, in four different books, that same command comes up. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. 
If you've worshipped with us long at all, you know I have personal space issues. I don't really even like to be hugged by anybody outside of my family. Moreover, my wife or daughter, my boys and I, we're knuckle bumpers. That's all, uh, it's all good. And I certainly don't want to be kissed by anybody but my wife, especially men. I, I just have a problem with that. If Jeff Hoff were to come up to me and kiss me, the game is on. And it, it doesn't really matter what the Bible says. It's just on. We're going to have a problem with that. I've been kissed by people, greeted with a holy kiss. A fella as big as Ray Brossman came and grabbed me one day, picked me up off the ground, and kissed me just as sure as I'm standing here, set me back down. I thought, ah, you, you're not a believer. I know that. Certainly not my friend. I, I don't like this passage. The Bible teaches it. There is cultural application in it, though. If you were in France or Italy today, greeting one another with a holy kiss would be culturally acceptable. Praise God, the church in America has found a different cultural application from the Bible. Let me show it to you. Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and then to the Jews. That's where handshaking started. The right hand of Christian fellowship. No more kissing. Right hand of fellowship. Let's shake hands. Either way, this greeting one another with a holy kiss or shaking hands with another believer is a way of saying we're connected. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a bond between us. So the cultural application of it still carries over today. We have to ask how we're doing that. And we have to be able to justify it within our own faith. It's imperative that we do that. There's an old bumper sticker that's floated around for a number of years. I really kind of like it. <laughs> it. It teaches very simply, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. For years and years and years, I've believed in that. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Here lately, I've come to the conclusion that that's bad doctrine. It really should read, God says it, that settles it. What I believe or don't believe does not matter because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, today. And forever, he is morally absolute. So when I take that center part out about I believe it, I'm trying to say that that God needs my agreement or God needs my belief in order for his absolutes to stand. And folks, I don't care how important you think you are. God does not need your agreement for his moral absolutes to stand. We can trust them, and we should. When apathy kicks in, we get ourselves in a terrible way. Now, you could easily say, okay, here's some practical things. Kissing, handshaking, meat, blah, 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 blah. Really, what are some of the ways that apathy takes over? Well, again, good question. Things like church attendance, the time that you spend in your Bible on a daily basis, the amount of time you spend in prayer, how you approach giving, what you do with the Lord's Supper, how often you take it and how you take it. Those are spiritual disciplines that are necessary. They are necessary in our lives. Yet people have gotten to a place where they've moved away from those disciplines. 15, 20 years ago, a person believed that they were actively involved in a church if they attended three out of four weeks. Do you know what the the surveys teach today? A person believes that they are actively involved in a church if they attend once every eight weeks. So we've gone from three out of four to one out of eight People have moved away from the discipline of church attendance. They have become apathetic about it, and I would offer to you they've atrophied as a result. 
The same thing is true with the time that we spend in our Bibles on a regular basis. All it takes is for you to break that habit, and before long you have no habit, and you're not even sure how to open your Bible and get back into it. Or prayer, you spend enough time not praying, not talking to God, you'll find yourself back in a place where you're saying, Lord, teach me how to pray, I don't even know how to pray. Or giving, we may find ourselves in a situation where we're saying, I know the Bible teaches it, and I know it's a discipline that I need to apply, but then we don't do it long enough, and we start to think to ourselves, well, God doesn't really need my money. God never needed your money in the first place. God never needed that. He didn't sacrifice the cows on a thousand hills. God wanted you to have the blessing that's associated with it. Before long, the blessing's gone. Or we start approaching the Lord's Supper wrong, and we get ourselves into trouble. And when we get ourselves into trouble, it's hard to get back out. All because we didn't trust what God said. Trust what he says. That helps us overcome spiritual apathy that causes spiritual atrophy. And then that allows us to be strong enough to face the giants when we have to. Let's go back to that. I've become convinced that the biggest problem the Hebrew children had is the same problem that we have. When they faced the giants, they believed that they had to do it alone. When we face giants, we convince ourselves we have to do it alone. You remember as we were reading in Deuteronomy chapter 1, that when they heard about the Anakites, the sons of Anak there, the giants, they said, we can't do this. They believed they were going to have to do it by themselves. Nobody ever said that to them. Nobody ever said that they were going to have to pull it off on their own. Instead, God would say, I am right here with you. We can do this together. The second time they stood on the edge of the promised land, Moses knew he was not going to be going with them, and he was turning over the reins of leadership to Joshua, but he was still addressing the Hebrew people. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. He says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the way it works in God's economy. He is right there with us, facing the giants with us. And he is ready to defeat them with us. That's pretty powerful. In fact, it's very powerful. And we have to hold on to that. You don't face those giants alone. You face them with God. Now, let me show you the practical application of that back in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You remember when we made that initial list of giants that we face, our checkbook was one of them. Giving is part of the, the apathy that happens. God says, Keep your life free of the love of money. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. I'll take care of you. You just practice what I've told you to practice. That's the way it works, folks. We practice what God tells us to practice, and God responds. Here's what's happened in modern Christianity because people have so atrophied in their faith. They believe that they can do whatever they want, and God must bless them even with their bad choices. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we are to trust God and then God blesses. Not the other way around where we go out and do whatever we want and God is still going to bless us. It doesn't work that way. When we trust the principles of the Bible, when we trust the principles of God, 
we position ourselves to receive the blessings of God. That's the way it works. It requires trust. Dr. Lonesty will help us with that. Battling against moral relativism will help us with that. And then when we face the giants, we'll be ready to defeat them. Because do you remember Jesus' words? I came that they might have life and have it to the full. And he meant it. He meant it. That means that he'll help you defeat the giants. You just make sure you don't become so apathetic that you atrophy spiritually. doesn't matter what the giant is. God will be there to help you take care of it. Interestingly enough, in the midst of all of this, as we look at the idea of atrophy and so on, here's what we discover. People have moved away from the moral absolute so much that they have allowed giants into their life that they cannot defeat. I read this a a few years ago. It shocked me then, and I pulled it back out this last week. One year after 9-11, in September of 2002, George Barna ran a survey. That's what the Barna Group does. They run surveys all the time. He wanted to see how people were feeling one year post-9-11 about moral absolutes. Because right after 9-11, on the 12th of September and October 12th and so on, people were absolutely convinced of moral absolutes. The Muslims flew planes into these buildings. They attacked us on our ground. We needed to do something about it. One year afterwards, in the survey, this is what Barna found out. I don't know how many people he talked to, but of the adults that he polled, 75% of them said that there is no moral absolute that it's all dependent on how someone sees things. And we have to be tolerant of the variant views. And their truth may be different than our truth. Therefore, we cannot judge them. Isn't that amazing? Now, here's where it really gets scary. He decided to test it a little deeper than that. So he polled a bunch of 12 to 18-year-olds to see what they thought one year post 9-11. 94% of them said the same thing. Only 6% of teenagers believed that there was a moral absolute. Everybody else said it's fluid and we can't hold anybody to it and there cannot be any judgment associated with the differences. Isn't that atrocious? As a result of that, today college campuses are watching a number of their students head over to northern Iraq and Syria to join a heinous group of people called ISIS. It's not just happening in the United States of America. Countries all across the globe are seeing the same thing because there's no moral absolute. They can't be held in judgment. Or worse, because ISIS does have, albeit skewered and wrong, their own form of moral absolute, and those same kids that were growing up believing that there was no absolute are grabbing a hold of the only absolute that they can see because we've atrophied. We've become so apathetic that we've destroyed it. It's interesting to me, when the Ark of the Covenant was coming back into Jerusalem, Abinadab wasn't there, Eliezer wasn't even there. I can't help but wonder to myself if if it wasn't a parenting thing that cost Uzzah his life. Folks, if there is any place that moral absolutes have to be taught, it's at home. If there is any place that it has to be driven home over and over and over and over again, it's from parents to children. You let them know what the absolutes are and you help them understand how to treat the holy things of God. You help them understand the word of God. You get them involved in it. You make sure that they know how God feels about certain things. 
And the only way that you can really combat that is by living what you believe because kids are smart. You may tell them one thing and live a different way and they'll see it. They'll pick up on it very quickly. So you live what you teach. You live what you say. Even down the line to making sure that that when you start looking at this idea of spiritual apathy, that you're in church on Sunday mornings in fellowship with other believers and in the presence of God, Because God says that's what we're supposed to do on the Lord's Day. We're supposed to be there. There are all kinds of other things that come into play that keep us away from church sports, hunting, fishing, going to Costco, any number of different things get in the way. That just gets in the way. And we think, well, gosh, God will just understand. Well, let me show you how he starts the Ten Commandments. Are you ready for this? Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. That's how the Ten Commandments start. We've allowed a lot of other gods to take his place. Parents, don't let that happen. Teach your children something different. You teach them to trust the Lord and to honor him. It makes a difference. And then we can apply it in our own lives as well. Doctrinal honesty will help us do that. Be honest to the word of God. It is always honest to you. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, once again... We've kind of come to an abrupt end. I hope that doesn't get in the way of what you had to teach. I certainly hope I didn't get in the way either. There are a lot of words that were just shared. Help us grab hold of the ones that we need to. Help us apply them. Lord, this idea of trusting you starts in salvation. So I want to pray for those that have yet to make that decision to trust you for their salvation. Help them do that that they might grow deeper in that walk every day. Lord, the, the enemy, the devil, would seek to destroy our relationship with you. Help us carry the fight right back to him and remind us always that you are there with us. He is not a giant. You're right there with us. And Lord, you promise us life. So I pray that everyone here will recognize that. In Jesus' name, amen.